Hello, I'm Ben Lee, and this is the LSQ Podcast. What's up? It's Jenny LSQ. I'm back, baby. I took a little bit of the summer off, but here we are, episode 93. And I'm so excited to finally have gotten to interview Ben Lee, the Aussie indie legend whose music I've been a huge fan of ever since he was putting out records with his teenage band Noise Addict back in the 90s. And we've known each other kind of through friends and through indie circles ever since then, but it's great to have gotten to know him better in recent months. We've become friends and sort of bonded over our love of Jonathan Richmond, and, and it's gone from there. And thanks to Ben and his wife Ioni for hosting me in their home to record this interview, which delves into Ben's musical history even before Noise Addict. But also, we get to talk about the new music he's working on. He just put out a couple of songs that originated back in 93 and which he only just recorded. But there's also a whole new Ben Lee album coming together, which I'll keep you posted on. Let's get into the interview. It's wild to be the boss in someone else's house at your at your table. Um, hi, Ben Lee. Hello, Jenny LSQ. Welcome to the LSQ podcast. I it's been a long time coming. It's been it's been a dream of mine. It's been an adventure to get here, yeah, and yeah. I want to say that we are in Ben's home right now, and he's been kind enough to rig up a beautiful sounding recording scenario. If we're gonna do it, let's do it. Let's yeah, do it, yeah. right? And also, this is part of the reason that this is set up already is that Ben has a podcast as well called Weirder Together. Yeah, me and my wife Ioni Sky, we do it, and it's a, it's you know, it's a half hour, cozy weekly, just sort of recap and exploration of our lives. It isn't. It's one. Of, I, I'm very much into silliness and having a light touch with things as a I think as I've gotten older I used to be so like trying to wring the neck of life for meaning you know what I mean like all existential <laughs> young songwriters you know and now I just realize like there's something about having a light touch and a playfulness that is actually where I've touched the most profundity in my music and life so I like to do more and more things that have that sort of energy to them yeah, and I recently had the pleasure of seeing you play a show here in LA at the Moroccan Lounge, and it was my first time seeing you in concert in, you know, t probably twenty years. No, or but something. didn't you come? We weren't you and oh, busy yes. with that little show at the City Winery. Yes. But there was like, a, when we had uh, jo uh, Joanna Sternberg played, and and Juliana Barwick maybe was playing. Exactly. With you. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Um, clearly, it was very memorable for you. It clearly was very <laughs> memorable. Exactly. Um, that was more of a sort of a mellow kind yeah, yeah, of yeah. Uh, environment at City Winery. Yeah, I mean, it was just really cool to see, not just to get to hear you play the new songs that I hadn't heard before, but also to kind of do a new treatment on some of the older tunes and like the sort of EDM version of Cigarettes Will Kill You. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, it's kind of like, it's interesting because I think, obviously, I'm sort of a classicist in the way I think about songwriting. So, you know, songwriting, it's, it's, you know, I write verse, chorus, catchy melodies. I try and it, I keep it pretty simple, but at the same time, I think it's really important to remember there's sort of no rules for careers, and particularly those of us coming out of like '90s indie music. It's literally being written as we go. So you know, I think Pavement, watching them do their shows, is like such an interesting experience for all of us that we're there the first time round because you're like whoa are we like are we sort of involved in classic rock now you know it's like a different thing <laughs> and so I think for, for artists 
like me, there's a chance to sort of write our own rule book on what these next phases of our careers can look like. And it's pretty exciting in that sense. Yeah, let's let's go back to the let's go back to the beginning. I mean, well, I want to say before we go back to the beginning beginning, you what, you know, is known as the beginning of your career when you know, you started with Noise Addict, and uh, for me, the introduction was Grandpa Wood, which I was listening to your debut solo album, which I was listening to in the car on the way over <laughs> here, and and probably the first time I've listened to it like in full in a long time, uh, and I was like, holy shit, this album is still amazing. <laughs> it's you. like all bangers, <laughs> worth revisiting. Listeners. I was talking to Amy Taylor from Amel and the Sniffers about this the other night, because because they are, you know, they're making a follow up to a sort of big pretty big record for them you know and um the, nowadays music is so single oriented even for like punk bands and stuff because it's so driven by streaming and everything and i just still have the feeling the belief that you don't treat singles differently you just try and make an album where every song's amazing and i don't mean that to denigrate singles because i love singles but you should make records where every song's a single, not treat them as like, ooh, the special unicorn song that you get. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think Grandpa Wood is an example of that, where like even at 15, I went in going, okay, there's going to be 20 songs and everyone's going to be a hit in my, you know, my right. weird little lens of what that meant. Yeah. But at that point, you didn't you didn't have any one that you had to, uh, whose approval you were seeking at that point. Just girls. Right, but not, not, like, a fina- not a financial backer, right? No, that's right. Like the Amel and the Sniffers thing, I'm assuming at this point, there's is that's what enters the equation too, and not just now, but for a young band. If you get into the system, if you get noticed for being better than most other new bands, you know, early on, the pressure turns on early as well, so that you're worrying about things like singles, in your within your first couple of albums yeah you know there's now there's it's just a immediately a pressure cooker from from your label and the awareness that like if you don't make the right choices it's all gonna kind of go away which i'm assuming and i'd love for you to talk me through this 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 phase of when you were first putting out music how how you felt about it did you feel any sense of pressure uh, other than from peers or girls, as you've said, like to impress people, but just a pressure like to succeed when when you were first starting to do it, or did it just feel like I'm a child? <laughs> no, I mean I'm an I, actual child. There's yeah, no pressure. No, I wanted more out of life than what I saw around me, which is a very common thing for people that become self motivated in their careers young. And it's not that it was like it wasn't that like my household was abusive or anything like that. It was just. You know, it was a middle-class Jewish suburban Australian household in which the path was sort of laid out for what your aspirations should be. And they're fine. I know tons of people that have taken that road and they're having very happy lives. What are the, what's the path? You know, you go to university, you study something that has a business or legal so you know like like commerce law was like the big thing that like families wanted their kids to do i mean these days i sound like i'm like uh, uh, Mm. uh, talking to kanye um but uh (laughs) but but there is a um you know not in an anti-semitic way but there is a sense and it comes from i think the jewish impulse to survival to make sure that you kind of like get yours like that you set up and there's security and then my grandmother you know, when I 
got my first little publishing check. She was like, you should use this as a down payment for an apartment. Like, you know, when I was like 18. And and I just think there was a sense of sort of like responsibility that maybe does, it is sort of a post-Holocaust generation thing where, hey, you got to make sure that you're set up because you never know what can happen. And I just think I have, you know, some of my rage dissipated over the years and I realized that I'm just sort of a bit more experimental as a person like I wanted to kind of find my own value system and my own path so music became it just became a way to do it like I saw the door open I saw that like I mean I have this one memory of being in I think maybe I was in second grade and there was a musical they were putting on at school called Uncle Moishi and His Mitzvah Men. And, um, <laughs> and uh, they, it was, we were too young for them to like hold auditions or anything, but they stood everyone up in class and we had to go around and just sing Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Ti, Do. Each way. And the teachers were basically making a note of who could sing and who wouldn't, who couldn't. Maybe it's wouldn't, but either way, there were the people that were willing and could do it, you know, and um, also shouldn't. Yeah, shouldn't. <laughs> and I got, I remember it got to me and I just did, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, like basically just in tune. And I saw the teachers look at each other in a way that like, he can carry a tune. And it's amazing how little clues like that, um, you, they become part of the map you put together of how to create a life. Like I saw that, huh. A melody comes out of my mouth and there's some grown-ups in power who kind of can sense, oh, let's give this guy an opportunity. And all of that was just building until I saw Nirvana, basically. And once I saw Nirvana play, because that was the first, in I'd seen like local punk bands like the Hard-Ons and the Hellman and Mass Appeal and Ratcat. But as far as international bands, I'd only seen like Motley Crue and Skid Row. And like, like the, I thought of like, to get really big, it had to be this sort of theatrical pomp type thing. And once I saw Nirvana in, I think it was, whether it was 91 or 92, that big day out, right, right. It was like the week Nevermind came out or before they were in Sydney. And it was just three guys on a stage. And the feeling in there was unbelievable. I could barely see. I was jumping because I was short and I was jumping up and there were these two girls who were like, late teens, early twenties. And they were letting us have me and my friend have sips of their beers. And I was like, oh my God, this, this is perfect. So, so it's like, you get all these clues. And then I remember like taking songs, like everything, like Guns N' Roses songs and sort of analyzing the structure. Like, oh, there's like an intro and then a verse and a chorus, and then maybe a reintro, verse, chorus, then maybe a bridge, or there can be like a solo, double chorus, end. And I just wrote it down. And I was like, this isn't that complicated. And so anyway, it all just, that's how it all just bit by bit came into my mind. And then my aspirations were just, if I want to make this real, every song I write has to be better than the last song I wrote. That's how you get good at anything. That's yeah, yeah. It's it's not that hard. Just do it better <laughs> gradually, people. Um, what? So you got cast in- the Uncle Moishi. I was Uncle, Uncle Moishi. You were Uncle yeah, Moishi. Yeah, I became the big guy. And my hit song, my big moment was Ain't Gonna Work on Saturday. Ain't gonna work on Saturday. Ain't gonna work on Saturday. Double, double, triple pay. Ain't gonna work on Saturday. Yeah. 
Shabbos. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so you and and also some details in there. I'm curious about who. How did you get to the? Who let you go to Big Day Out? Was that a parental thing? Did you have to sneak? Was it? Well, I'd already been going to like metal shows and stuff from when I was ten. Like I saw Motley Crue on the Doctor Feelgood tour when I was ten, and my dad took me. Okay. And so then there was like a. I was going to shows. My dad was really cool. Like he wasn't into music that I was into, but he was into supporting my love of it. So he'd like come to the shows and wear these big industrial headphones. It was mortifying, especially because when you're that age, what you picture when you're going to a Motley Crue show is that you're going to enter into like an orgiastic bacchanalia of just like women with their tops off yeah. and drugs. And the reality is you're going into the Sydney Entertainment Centre and, you know, two elevations back standing there in your seat. And, yeah, But um. But so it built up and up, and I think I also just kind of built their trust. Like, whatever mischief I was getting up to, I still was at the place I was meant to be when it was time to get picked up and all that. Are so, you actually yeah. – so you're how old at the at Big Day Out seeing Nirvana? So I was – it was the beginning of seventh grade, so I was 12 turning 13. Okay. I'd been playing piano, and, and I tried writing songs on that, and then I switched to guitar. And then I, that was when I really just went, oh, there's literally, I've learned A, D, and E chords. I can write songs. And I wrote a song after my first, I had a few guitar lessons. And after the first one, I wrote. And was is Nirvana what you thought you wanted to sound like at that point? It's funny because I think, and this is something to do with whatever my personal legacy is that I'm kind of still figuring out. But part of what people enjoy about me is my sense of personal delusion about, or my excitement about what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Like it, it's not just, it's not that I'm making something always that's objectively brilliant. It's that I'm doing it with a spirit that is sort of like inspires people, I think. So when Noise Addict made our first demos, um, do you know the Half a Cow label from mm -hmm. Sydney? So that was Nick Dalton who played in the Lemonheads or on the It's a Shame About Ray. He ran a record label there that like Smudge were on, which was Tom Morgan who co-wrote all those songs with Evan. Anyway, he was a big Tascam 244 guy. So I called him and got some advice on how to record. But in my mind, I thought I was making like Appetite for Destruction. <laughs> like I thought I was going to make some hi-fi bullshit. I was like, I was just like, this is going to rock. And the with it's three musicians, kids, 14-year-olds who don't know how to play. And secondly, the first time I've ever used a four-track recorder, so don't know how to record. Yet I was so delusional and inspired that to me it sounded like Appetite for Distraction. So I think when people like Thurston Moore and stuff heard that, they were like, this is actually insane. Like this is what is exciting about sort of folk art when you meet young or old people, young people, but people who are in their own reality. And that involves a lot of fantasy, but you can kind of go on the journey into their fantasy. So yeah, it was, I, I thought we were making something very hi-fi. How, how did Thurston Moore hear that? So there was a street press called, we had two street press papers in Sydney um, called, one was called On the Street and one was called Drum Media. And they came out every week and they were sort of my world. Like every Wednesday afternoon, I would get off the bus early at a certain shop where I knew I could get the street press and I would read them cover to cover. It was like, you know, it was like the village voice, like right. everything happening in Sydney. And they had one on the sort of inside back cover was advice to musicians. And it was the first one was like how, what to do with your demo. And it described things I'd never heard about. Like you have to have a thing called a bio and you have to have a photo and 
And then they said, go pull out your cassettes or your CDs and write down the addresses of all the record labels that you like and put them in a package with a note with everything and then call one week later and check they got it and say who you are and then call two weeks later and check that they've <laughs> and I'm a good student, you know? So so I did that. I just did that, you know? And um and I remember I, I sent it to this label called Waterfront, which was also a record store. And I called uh, two weeks later. We started getting all these just instant rejection letters, like oh, horrific, just like people almost like laughing at us and thinking we were in on the joke and we weren't at all because we thought it was awesome. Um, and then I called Waterfront and I said, hey, this is Ben from Noise Addict. Um, we sent you a demo tape. Just curious if you got it. And this voice at the other end, go the other end goes, Ben, your tape stood out like dog's balls. <laughs> And that's the start of my career. Um, and basically he had was then going to start a label with this guy, Steve Pav, who was like a sort of kind of upcoming promoter in Sydney. And he toured Nirvana, Sonic Youth, Beastie Boys. So it became, that was still, it was like pre-internet. So that was still tape trading kind of times where like, you remember things like um, the Jerky Boys and all that and all those like buddy rich yelling at his band <laughs> like everyone would have these cassettes and bands would share them amongst each other orson wells doing outtakes from commercials that kind of yeah. thing and who were they there was shut up little man do you remember that there were two guys in an apartment in la who were like it was like an odd couple situation but also coupled with mental illness and alcoholism and they would argue and they their catchphrase they'd say to each other was shut up little man and what someone living below them just started taping them and putting them out <laughs> so anyway that this was a culture of like bands sharing weird stuff with each other and that was how my music started getting around Wow. Okay. So, <laughs> so word re did you know that that was going on? I mean, you knew that you'd at least reach Waterfront Records. That you're yeah. like, we're something's going to happen here. They liked it at least. We're we're off. We're we're out of the gates. And but were you aware as it kind of began to build? That's one of the things I'm so curious about in this entire early phase. Where and and again, like you were a a minor. Yeah, you were a, chi yeah, yeah, a child. Yeah. You know, yeah. and like you have children. You know, it's like it's like okay, well, that is as precocious as you might have been. As much as you probably feel like you're the same person as you were then, did you know as you were getting there and getting somewhere and getting far and then getting farther than you aimed for? Like what was happening? Yeah, there was really good things happening. Like um, so. When I talked to Steve Stavrakis on the phone, he was like, so I'm setting up a label with this guy, Steve Pav. He wants to come and see you. Do you have any gigs coming up? And so I was like, yeah, yeah, we do. And we didn't have any gigs coming up. You know, it's like classic, like, you know, what you do when you start a band. So I was, I remember talking to my parents and I was like, I need to set up a gig because this guy wants to come and see it. And my dad goes, well, the Waverly Library is having a secondhand book sale and sausage sizzle, which is like a barbecue in Australia. And they're like, do you want me to ask if you're like a local band? Do you want to see if you could do a little set at the library? And I was like, great, let's ask. <laughs> so, so we got the gig and it was, you know, so it's very funny. So we set up, it was sort of like outdoor under this kind of pagoda type thing. And it was just our school friends sitting around, uh, sitting in a circle basically. And then this one hipster dude with a shaved head and that was Pav. And he came to the show and he was just watching it. And then he came back after and he said, Hey, my name is Steve Pav. I really like that. Do you guys want to support Sonic Youth next week? And that was when it's sort of like, I was like, yeah. And then he was like, well, actually Thurston was wondering if you want to spend the day in the studio and he could record you guys. And 
So that was really like the kickoff to our like debutante type moment, you know, and we, we met Thurston and it was so funny. you were a Sonic Youth fan. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But like, you know, I came to Sonic Youth through Nirvana. Right. Which is like, I was that generation. You know, and also like, it wasn't, I mean, it was Nirvana was mainstream accessible to kids. Yeah. And Sonic Youth was something you had to know to look for. Yeah. But I've also like, I have this thing that maybe is more from like our generation where music wasn't as easy to get access to. So a lot of the music I fell in love with, I fell in love with by reading about it. Mm. So I would like fall in love with it. Like I remember Nirvana, I fell in love with that band before I heard them because I read so many articles. It was right as Nevermind was about to come out. And it was funny because everyone described it as Black Sabbath meets the Beatles. Mm. And so I pictured in my head what I thought that would sound like. And I remember when I actually got Nevermind, I was like, this is not exactly what I was picturing. But then I listened to it a few times. I was like, I still, I dig it. I can get on board with it. But what I fell in love with was almost like the conceptual presence of these artists. And I'm still kind of like that. Like I have a pretty wide variety of taste. I like artists that like stand for something good. And that can give me a lens to appreciate their work. Like I'm not a total esthete with art. Like I like the value, almost like the community value that artists add through bringing their own perspective. But now you can access music so easily that it's so rare. You would never really have that unless it's like a band you hear that hasn't put anything out yet, you know? But then it was like, so I read about all these bands. In like these, Sonic in these and the Pixies street, right, before in these, in these newspapers you're yeah, talking and then about like I'd or? get like NME and Melody Maker, but okay. they were um, by... I could only really, I was, you know, I was a kid, so I could only afford the ones that came by boat. That's why in I Wish I Was Here, I said he gets his NMEs sent by air, not boat, because when they came airmail, they were like $15. And this is in 1992 at the newsagent. But then the ones that had come by sea mail were like three months old and were like four or five bucks. So I, but you know, actually with the way culture moved, by the time something was big in England, three or four months was actually like an appropriate time for it to get to Australian the psyche. Right, I didn't right, need to know right. about menswear the week that came out. <laughs> you did. You really did. So yeah, so that was so I was just reading and and so everything that was happening in culture at the time, which was and this is something that I've I, I've talked a lot about because it's one of the grand mysteries of how my life exists as it exists now, that my skill set was uniquely useful for that moment in culture where people were looking for quirky home recorded basically unprofessional stuff which had i been going out at five years earlier or five years later it wouldn't have had the same like the door opened at that moment that was when like you know i remember on my on the grandpa wood tour rebecca gates um she'd sung on the um elliot smith record with um uh What's the one with him jumping between the buildings, you know, in purple? On um, the self-titled album? Is that the self-titled? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so that, she she played me St. Ides Heaven. She's like, my friend Elliot's made this record and it's incredible. And this was all, and then the reason I made Grandpa Wood with Brad Wood was because of Exile in Guyville, the Liz Fair record. So it was just like I showed up at the party at the exact moment when there was an, they were playing my song on the dance floor. And that that is weird, man. But that happens like that happened for the strokes that happens when like you, you show up and it just happens to be where culture is ready to go. You're there at the right time. And I'm really have a type of like 
that's why I have like a mystical gratitude for the fact that I, like my whole life essentially unfolded from that weird moment of kind of synchronicity, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I you've thought about this a lot more than I have. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> my career, yeah. It's only fair. It's only fair. <laughs> Uh, that your theories that your theories about yourself are stronger than my <laughs> theories about yourself, but I also think that you're you know you're underestimating you know and and I would say the same of the Strokes who you know I'm a huge fan yeah. of. Um, yes, there's some right place, right time, zeitgeist kind of shit, but like in the midst of it, it's and and I think you wear your appreciation of other artists on your sleeve. You always have, and so you feel like, oh wow, I was appreciated by those who appreciated me. It's right place, right time, but it's like, no, there's, there's something at the base of it, which is just your connection to music and your ability with it that is uncommon. Yeah, and, that's true. That's true. And that that and therefore at any time it would have been maybe not quite as much of the exact right moment, but it would have, you know, I think like it's not so just that there was an aesthetic and there was a charm and, oh, they're kids. No, they like our music. It's, you know, even just today, like I say, driving over, listening to Grandpa Wood, it's like, of course, I can hear the things that I know were influences that I was listening to in that era as well. That was just like the melodic influences and but it's still sort of like how does this 15 year old have such good melodies well look that i i, I guess i'm, I'm hearing <laughs> like, like i i had a similar conversation with john c Riley at lago one night when i was kind of you know going on about pavement or something like one of the artists who i considered like the godfathers of what was happening and that that, that helped me along and and John was like, yeah, but you showed up with the songs, you know? And I think I'm, maybe that is actually even harder for me to understand. And so I, I don't know what to do with that because I mean, whatever inbuilt talent is, you know, it's funny. I was listening to Lou Barlow's podcast, um, Roy Impressions this week and as his daughter, he, he has his daughter Izzy on it and she's singing, making up a song. But what's really interesting about it is she's picked up all of the nuances of phrasing and rhythm from like Taylor Swift. This is a little kid, but she has, her brain has taken in with no intellectual analysis what lyrics should sound like. So they're silly because she's she's like, I'm going to open the window and me, e, 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 e. like these things that are like, they're like tropes in the way lyrics are now. So, so there are certain brains that are also absorbing information in areas that we care about. But um, it's weird, man. It's it's really, it's still mysterious to me, I guess, is the, is the bottom yeah, line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want to focus in a little more on the, because, you know, you've talked about kind of some logistics and some strategy and some that the right place, right time kind of stuff. But in the actual just sitting with your guitar, letting music come to you, writing songs, like tell me a bit about kind of how that developed mm -hmm. and just when you realized that it was that that was meaningful to you and special to you beyond just like what what you know where it might get yeah well another thing that helped me about that era was indie rock at the time was all about being prolific so like guided by voices had started putting out all their weird like you know photocopied vinyl covers i remember the first time i saw that I don't know if it was Propeller, the one that was, they were colored in, the wrestlers on the front, and each one had been colored in. And I was like, and then Half a Cow, like, they were putting out, every artist had, like, five side projects and was putting out. And yeah. so 
So the, the influence on being prolific was actually a great atmosphere for me to come up in because it gave me a framework by which writing every day, it wasn't like, I didn't see it as like, I'm going to write 300 songs in a year and I'll use 10 of them. I saw it as like, I'm going to write 300 songs and put out 30 different projects, right? So that is a really good way to get better. And have lived down the road for me and I would go and borrow his vinyl and tape it all the time like twice a week I'd go to his apartment he had this amazing record collection and I would like that's where I first heard Jonathan Richman the Stooges the Velvet Underground like I got my musical education from his record collection and but my part was that I would bring him a cassette of new songs every week so like literally I would write a song every day at least a song every day sometimes sometimes I'd write two songs I just didn't, it didn't seem weird at that time. Um, also, because I like didn't like school. So I'd come home and I'd go into my world, which was, I was building this thing. I was like becoming a songwriter. And every, I just, these tapes would pile up with songs. And there could be another great thing that came from indie rock was like songs could be small. They didn't all need to be Oasis songs that were like, get the whole stadium going. They could be a tiny comment on the crack in your mug and how that makes you think about someone. And that could be 30 seconds long. And that's, I think of all these liberating things that came from indie rock that just created this fertile atmosphere for practice, 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 basically. And so when did you start to feel like it was like you were you were in, you know, kind of like, you were like, I'm gonna, I'm a recording artist now. This is, I don't, I'm, 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 this is my career. I'm doing this. I mean, you might, I don't know if you relate to this, but that's been a very gradual thing for me. Um, probably because essentially I was a kid who got picked up by the circus and they were like, Hey, you're one of us. There's an interesting, um, opera by Wagner called Parsifal where this guy wanders through the forest and he stumbles on the knights sort of of the round table having a secret ceremony. And it's basically like he's found the grail and he's blown away, but they say, you're not ready, go back and find us again. And, and the, the line they use in it, he says he went through um, great effort and conscious suffering. And then at the end, he finds his way back to them but now he's been wounded and humbled in appropriate ways and now he's basically an artist or he's enlightened or whatever you know so I think for me it was a little bit like that where like I got welcomed in but I hadn't chosen it totally consciously like I was still my friends were my friends at school and they were all going to be going to university and marrying Jewish girls and do, you know all that kind of stuff and so it was a very unfolding process that I would actually say without wanting to undermine the question, it's like still unfolding for me. And I remember like about 10 years ago, I was in the studio with this guy, Alex Burke, who's a really great vibraphone player. And he was asking me about the label I was on at the time. I guess it was like Danger Bird or something. And he said, how's it going with them? And I said, it's good. I mean, you know, they're not going to like break me, but they're like doing the job. And he was like, Ben, haven't you already broken? And it was this funny moment where I realized that I wasn't in present tense with everything that's happened, whereas now I am, but it took me a really long time to get to the most simple answer, which is that like, I like making shit with people I like 
and the world seems to want that enough from me that that's what I should do. I mean, it's like so simple, but it's also required so much genuine self-esteem that it was like hard to get there actually, because you can do it with bravado and just be like these like tech bros, you know, whatever, who like develop apps and are like, yeah, I'm the next Mark Zucker, but like, whatever, that doesn't mean anything. You're going to sabotage it if it's not real. So it was like a very long journey for me to feel like I'm like in my destiny. Mm. But the cool thing about that is that I've been playing the long game the whole time. <laughs> so, so, you know, like I, I used to say when I was like 18, 19, I used to say, I'm going to be making my best records in my seventies. And it would be laughable because it was an 18 year old kid who had no idea what real life looked like. So to say something like that, it's like, you don't even know what your 20s are going to be like. But now I've been doing it for 30 years. When I say I'm going to be doing it for 30 more, people are like, you probably are actually. Right. And you, even if you're not making your best stuff, you're going to be making something interesting because you've got enough of a track record of making interesting things. So it's like, you got to like earn all that. You know what I mean? To like really carry it properly. So you're saying that even at in a in the phase of your career where you're you know fair to say huge in Australia yeah, you yeah. know what I mean playing festival and you're just like out putting out getting to put out out you know there's no worry that the next album isn't gonna have a home or whatever like that you felt you didn't feel secure in your in your position at that point yeah I think what, I I don't know it's so tricky it's like you know I remember when the vines came out. And they were Australian and they were like the hot band, you know. And I remember me and Rose Byrne went to see them at the Troubadour and I was like probably 23. But I felt like an old man. I was like, this is the new shit, you know what I mean? And then I remember like, you know, going the side of Max Fish or somewhere and there's like the Strokes and Ryan Adams hang out with them. And like, I was like, wow, like I'm sort of like these guys age actually, but I'm from another generation artistically. And... I think a lot of times I've thought it's probably going to be over at some point. It's actually in the last five years to a decade that I've realized that I actually can't get away from it. Cause every time I've like, I've tried to do, I just follow other interests, but they didn't really like work. And I would find myself having ideas for music. So I see it as a little bit like I, it took me a long time to get to the point of actual surrender to what creativity is in me and it's yeah i i think but i i think what i'm the story i'm telling is not that uncommon i think there are people that stand all the time on stage accepting grammys or headlining arenas and feel like a total fraud and also feel that it's they're basically like on watch because it's gonna all crumble down and it does often like when you look at like the kings of leon or you know, Fiona Apple or like artists who were thrust into the mainstream with like tremendous acceptance and desire for their work, they almost had to dismantle it consciously or unconsciously in order to rebuild it as something that felt like their own. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's a complicated process. Did you, would you say in retrospect that, that, that 
you know, as you've said, you sort of these past five years or something, you feel like you've kind of reached an awareness of just like, it is happening. I am doing it. It's always, I'm, I'm always doing it. I'm never not doing whatever the thing is that I'm supposed to do, kind of, in a way. Um, but it, in the, those earlier eras when you were struggling just to kind of get, feel grounded, did it affect the music you were writing? And does yeah. and does a greater sense of security now affect the, the music you've written since then? Yeah, well, I think w- what I notice is sort of through my 20s to kind of mid 30s i was like i was saying i was like um preoccupied with existential angst you know and that led me into all kinds of like spiritual explorations and like consciousness stuff and all these you know all the weird teachers and communities and all that and i actually think that sucked a lot of the humor out of my music like when i think about how I came onto the scene. It was with Wish I Was Him, which was like a fucking funny song. You know what I mean? Like whether you, it was earnest and it wasn't. And I think that sense that, okay, this is totally bizarre. This is this 14 year old kid. We can't tell if he's being serious or not. He obviously understands something about what's happening in pop culture, but it's also very vulnerable. And like all of that stuff, the, the, it's almost like the genesis of my whole career was in that. And I think that's common with people's first singles or records where you go, yeah, it's all in there. You can see the potential of what it can be. And I think as I was feeling less, when I was in periods where I was feeling less secure, I was less playful. And so I think being overly serious for me doesn't flatter because I'm intense. It's probably because I'm intense that like if you couple intensity with too much seriousness, it becomes like super off-putting because people are like, like I only would say like, oh, you're just so intense at the shows that like people are like, I'm not in group therapy. I'm like, you know what I mean? Like, and it's true. I can see that. But it's interesting that if I put that intensity into playfulness and couple it with humor, it suddenly becomes like a delightful space for the audience to be in. So it's all stuff I've sort of had to work through. How would you say that your approach, your process is is most kind of similar now to when you were a kid and, you know, and, and most different? And do you do you still have a, any kind of, you know, not a song a day, but like what is your kind of? Um, yeah, I think it's I, I I really like to be creative every day. Um, it's no longer writing a song every day. Maybe it's mucking around on the MPC and making beats. Maybe it's doing a podcast. Maybe it's talking about a project I want to do. Like, like it's very, if I just get into logistics and promotion, I'm bored. Uh, I understand those things are part of being an adult and being an upstanding member of the creative community. <laughs> but uh, But it's not where the juice is for me. The juice is in, brainstorming and doing new stuff and I think that recognizing that about myself and it's almost like it's almost like understanding your blood type or your what food makes your body feel good that I know like guitar when I play it it, it's almost like it feels healthy you know what I mean like even if I, I don't have to be writing a song I can just be noodling around like sometimes I'll be like I haven't played guitar for a week or something I pick up the guitar and I just feel healthy it feels good for me so I think in some ways that's exactly the same, that always being at the beginning of a project is where I find my truth, kind of. Like it's where I'm scared and innocent and ambitious and 
foolish and brave and all those things like those I've always had that like I can charge in and go we don't know where we're going but let's go there and that is fundamental to who I am uh what's changed is being a bit more I guess you sort of just learn to be a little bit more intentional about where you put energy I've been involved in very long projects that have sort of not ultimately gone anywhere which I think we all have to go through that in show business. It's just part of, and, and then some of them do. And that's what's so frustrating. <laughs> you can't just go, well, if it's taken more than a year, it's not going to happen because it's not true. But there's been a whole process around starting to know like what's my job and what isn't. Like I, I heard Lena Dunham say something really cool once, which she was talking about making movies, but she said, find the story that only you can tell and make it with whatever resources are available. And I think that identifying like what are my stories to tell is a really important part of knowing where to allocate my energy creatively. Like everything me and Ioni are doing together under our weirder together kind of company, like, you know, pods and some developing different things. Um, and even like, you know, we love to throw parties. Like we look at that as part of our creative expression too it's all got to feel like it's our story to tell. You know what I mean? Like, cause otherwise it's like, you're wasting your time. Like there's, there's so many people who can do so many things I've tried to do better than me and more naturally than me, but there's things that I can do more naturally than anyone else. So it's just that, what do they call that? Your zone of genius? Like try and be in your zone of genius. That's like where you are contributing in a way that's unique and powerful. Your Zog. Yeah, is that what it's called? Your I mean, I'm just saying, like Z-O-G, it. your I Zog. Like you got to get, get deep yeah. into your Zog. Yeah. And you actually, and if it's okay that we're talking about this, are about to start recording some new stuff tomorrow, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm so yeah, I'm making this record, um, this, this new album. It's 10 songs, 30 minutes. It's called This One's For The Old Heads. And it's all about passion for music, growing up, kind of like being a punk and staying a punk, but but at the same time maturing. And um, I've got John Worcester and Jason Narducci coming in. They, they land today. Amazing. And then we're going in the studio tomorrow and we're going to bang out the tracks over three days. And I'm really excited about that because, yeah, again, it's like that's my story to tell. You know, it's funny, Shamir was the – I'd never heard that phrase, old heads, before. That was something Shamir called me once. He was like, we were talking about something how like both me and Malkmus were two people that like like loved Shamir from the get-go when we heard when we heard him. And Shamir was like, Yeah, you know, my I do everything with kind of this like playful sort of approach, which I think is why the old heads get into it. And I was like, whoa, the old heads. I love it. <laughs> and I was like, wait, wait, what is that exactly? And since then I've heard it so much, but it's like, um, you know, the people that were in the scene before you, there's always people that were in the scene before you. And like, you know, honoring, honoring that, like honoring people that continue to show up for music and that music continues to show up for them. But that there's also, there's complications in it. Like, like I have this line in, um, in one of the new songs that says, uh, um, I love the old heads cause they've still got soul, but when they get stuck in the past, it leaves me cold because that's, part of it too that you want to it's okay to be an old head but you got to connect to the child in you especially with music and appreciating it so so anyway we're just going to go in and make this record and I'm, I'm thrilled about it 
Uh, one of the things that I appreciate about you is uh, is your enthusiasm for for younger artists, and obviously, is a key part of your story is you know that that older artists supported you. How do you find you know new music and new artists that that you are intrigued about, and and you know do you tend to just sort of reach out to people and say hi, nice to meet you, I'm Ben Lee. Is there anything I can do to help, or what? How do you these kind of bridge building like? How does that? Yeah, how does work I mean, you? if it's Australian, the Australian community is very small, you know. So yeah, if if it's if it's an Australian artist, you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to end up being in a room with them and meeting them, or whatever. But I, I honestly, it's it's kind of the same as it's always been. I just follow the clues in front of me. Like there's this artist, Pool Blood from Toronto that Shamir produced. And so I went, went, oh, well, I love Shamir's taste. I'll check it out. And her name's Mariam. And we ended up becoming, you know, followed each other on Instagram, became friends. It's not, not a complicated process. And not every artist that you admire or support becomes a real friend. I mean, I think friendship is... I love it so much and so many of my friends are artists but some people I just admire from a distance and that's great too you know it like finding your it's an interesting thing like finding your creative tribe but then also finding your personal tribe like people you want to party with and gossip with and hang out with it's that's 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 like a personality thing you know so like someone like Georgia Mac or Shamir they're like people who they happened to coincide like artistically and personally it was just our matches were like the right thing at the right time but and Lou Barlow is interesting because he's someone who we had that personality thing like in 1994 we ended up like going out dancing after noise addict support or I supported Sebado and then we were like writing a song on a beach as the sun came up in St Kilda in Melbourne and now we're, you know, he, he and his wife are doing a podcast on our network. And, you know, so those are funny things that unfold. But then there are other people that, you know, like even like Mike D, who helped me so much. And I was on his label, but it didn't blossom into like the type of friendship because it just, that's okay. It doesn't help. It's like actors seem to be better at that. Like you can like, you can be in a family with someone because you work on a project for three months where it's like you see them every day and it's so intimate. And then people never see each other again <laughs> but I'm probably a bit more like a codependent person like I like I don't know I like looking after relationships but but yeah I just see it as it's like the natural flow of things I I always love do you like Laurie McKenna do you know her I don't know her so she's a Nashville songwriter okay um she she's done albums with jo Jonathan Wilson producing okay. but she's she's one of the 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 coolest of the Nashville songwriters um and her she did an album called the uh uh the rifle and the bird or something I forgot the name but anyway she has a song called humble and kind that she just has this amazing verse in it that I always it, it stayed in my mind she says when the dreams that you're dreaming come to you when the work you've put in is realized help the next one in line always be humble and kind and I do think there is a natural flow of things where we just, it's like we all benefit from having a vibrant, creative community. Well, I actually think that that is a great place for us yeah. to wrap up. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. And like I was saying about, you know, the old heads, like people that have kept the scene alive of interesting music, like I think I've always admired your commitment to that. And I know some of it is it's sort of where you end up. It's the niche that you end up most suited for, but it also takes 
tenacity and commitment to continually to to support music that doesn't always have other outlets to it and to take it seriously and to share it. And I just think it's really, I know it's really admirable and really necessary. So thank Thanks, you for ben, that. Thanks, Ben. I yeah. appreciate it. One old head to the other. There you go. <laughs> what a dude. Ben Lee, thanks again. Also, we didn't get to this in the conversation. Um, you know, we did talk about how Ben and Ioni have their own podcast, Weirder Together, but they also have their Weirder Together podcast network, which puts out podcasts by Jello Biafra, Lou Barlow, and Jay Maskus, two-thirds of Dinosaur Jr. And thanks again for listening to episode 93 of LSQ. I'm excited about some of the upcoming episodes this fall with Molly Rankin from Always and Kazu Makino from Blonde Redhead. Jason Isbell is a guest in the near future. Oh, also next week, Andrew Wyatt of Mike Snow and Beyond. If you're not already subscribing, I hope you'll do that. You can find episodes at JennyLSQ.com. And on socials, I'm at JennyLSQ. 